Welcome to episode six of What Kind of Country? I'm Victoria Meakin, and I'm moving with my family to the beautiful country of New Zealand. It's 2021, and the world is still in the grip of the coronavirus pandemic. So myself, my husband, and our two young children are governed by New Zealand's very strict managed isolation rules, meaning we'll be spending two weeks in a government-mandated hotel. And I'm delighted to say that I'll be dedicating part of that time to speaking remotely to some very generous Kiwis who've given up their time to help me answer the question, in 2021, what kind of country are we moving to? Coming up in this episode, as we enter our final week in MIQ, some sound financial thoughts from a well-known New Zealand economist. We've now gone past the seven-day mark in our managed isolation hotel, which definitely feels like a milestone. Christchurch is still looking pretty quiet out of the hotel window, but that could change in a couple of days when the South Island and parts of the North Island go down to a level three lockdown, which means more people will be out and about. I'm speaking today to a man who is very familiar to New Zealanders for his expert knowledge on all things financial. Independent economist and speaker Tony Alexander worked for many years as the chief economist for BNZ, one of New Zealand's leading banks. In 2019, he made the decision to leave that role, stating, I've decided that in a world of disruption, maybe it's time to disrupt myself and have made the call to resign. He now devotes much of his time to researching and writing about New Zealand economy, where he pays special attention to the country's housing market, the small to medium-sized businesses which represent the majority of New Zealand's enterprises, and business and culture. His regular publications include the weekly Tony's View newsletter, the Tony's View Business Survey, monthly Property Investor Insight Reports, and a monthly Mortgage Advisors Survey. Hello, Tony. Hello, Victoria. Thanks for taking the time to speak to me today. I'm going to take you away from economics and finance for a couple of minutes and ask you three general questions about New Zealand lifestyle that I'm putting to all contributors to this podcast. So firstly, can you tell me what is your favourite New Zealand beach? Yes, for me, uh, South Island, the West Coast, uh, fairly rugged down there. You're not talking about a lot of lovely white or or golden sand, but um, yeah, the beaches on the West Coast around about uh, Punakaiki and partly because of all the limestone uh, formations in the rocks, the caves and large overhangs uh, there. So if you get a bit bored sitting on the beach watching the waves uh, crashing in, you can go for a walk around the place and there's some fantastic, um, like I say, limestone formations there. So that probably for me is my favourite, even though I'd only get there every few years. Fantastic. And secondly... Where in New Zealand would you recommend I take my young family camping? Oh, yeah, you probably want to go, I suppose, somewhere different from where most people would go. Auckland, I guess they they probably head a bit north or I grew up in Christchurch. And so there's you know, people would head up to sort of uh, 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 Amberley or places like that. But I guess I'd suggest you head out to the East Cape of the uh, North Island, uh, Gisborne and north of uh, Gisborne there. Um, I hear that the beaches are really nice around there. And I, get, I think you'll get maybe a bit more of an authentic uh, New Zealand experience that maybe some of the other places which can get uh, pretty crowded when they're not quite so far from the uh, from the main centres there. So you've got to put in the effort to drive there, uh, but I think that would be quite worthwhile. 
Great. Thank you for that suggestion. And just a third question along those lines. Can you name one thing that you think every visitor to New Zealand should experience? Yeah, I've, I've, I remember thinking about this many years ago and deciding Maori culture, basically. You can go anywhere and see mountains. Uh, lots of other people have beautiful lakes, all this sort of thing. And lots of other countries also have sheep and, and green grassy paddocks. Uh, but of course, it's the culture which is unique in New Zealand. And so for that reason, you really need to get yourselves to uh, Rotorua and obviously see the sites around there. Uh, but go see the, the mud pools. But yes, yeah, dive yourself into, I think, the Maori culture uh, when you're there, because that, that I guess for New Zealand is what is definitely uh, unique. Thank you, Tony. Wonderful suggestions and I'm adding them to my ever-growing list. I'm going to turn now to your role as an economist and giver of financial information and advice to New Zealanders. I wonder, in 2021, is there one piece of advice or a prediction that you repeat more than any other in your talks and publications? <laughs> yeah, don't panic. <laughs> <laughs> We, we humans are hardwired to see the, the negative outcomes of anything new which comes along. We will automatically go to the most negative outcomes. And of course, this is extremely relevant at the moment. You see, when the first lockdown came along, it was new. We didn't know what it meant. And so we all predicted woe for our economies, uh, soaring unemployment, plummeting house prices, plummeting house construction, um, all these sorts of things. Well, of course, things were a bit rough for uh, seven weeks in New Zealand during the first lockdown, um, but then the economy absolutely uh, uh, stormed out the other side and house prices went through the roof. So this time around, people know uh, what happens during and after lockdowns and there isn't that sort of panic out there. But I still spend a lot of my time saying to people, well, interest rates are going to go up, but don't panic. We're not going back to the 1970s, 80s levels of inflation or, or, or interest rates. And oh, you've just bought a house. Don't panic about house prices falling 10 to 20%. They usually only fall about 5% if we're in a recession, it's short-lived. So that would be the stretching over the entirety of my sort of three and a half decades uh, in this business. It's, it's pulling people back from apocalyptic scenarios of what's going to happen. Why do you think the New Zealand economy has fared so well during the global pandemic? Yeah, quite a few reasons. Uh, one of them would have been the wage subsidy scheme. And so businesses didn't need to lay staff off uh, straight away. That was very important because the biggest problem for many businesses ahead of the March lockdown was they couldn't get staff. The unemployment rate was 4% uh, and they didn't want to lay people off. And the wage subsidy bought time for them to see the economy was actually improving come June, July, August. And so they didn't do the layoffs uh, which they were planning. So that would be the first thing. Secondly, uh, the housing market was accelerating going into lockdown in terms of turnover, construction and prices. And lockdown comes along. We're all uncertain. We all stand still for a while. And then, of course, the Reserve Bank slashes interest rates three quarters of a percent to record lows. Uh, they remove minimum deposit requirements, the LVRs. And we look at that and go, well, why would I leave my money sitting in the bank and earn a negative after tax and inflation return? Investors piled into the housing market market, first home buyers, they were jumping in there as well. And so the housing market definitely turning upward. And when you get house prices rising about 30%, we all feel wealthier, even though most of us have done absolutely nothing. And so we go and buy a few extra things. And there's a lot of other factors I could cite, but a key one I really tried to get people to focus on back at the time was 
we, we were all looking at $17 billion of spending in New Zealand by foreign visitors, foreign students. People forgot about us Kiwis spending about $10 billion ourselves overseas. We couldn't spend the $10 billion overseas. We spent it domestically on spas, electric bikes, home renovations, etc. And the final thing is, is highly relevant to that in that 32% of New, Ze New Zealand's um, exports go to China. China has the factories which has been uh, producing the spas, everything that people are being binging on around the planet. So their economy picked up relatively quickly and that's been very good for demand for New Zealand's primary products in particular um, out of China. So a whole range of things, but those may be, be the main ones. Moving on to the very strict border policy in force in New Zealand at the moment. As you know, I'm party to it at the moment and I'm speaking to you from MIQ. But how has this strict policy affected the ability of New Zealand businesses to function as they normally would? Well, I think it's it's not so much the functioning of an average business in terms of connections with overseas clients, etc. Globally, we all accepted we'd be doing that through through the internet uh, for a while. I think it's more been the hard impact on specific sectors. Obviously, initially hospitality, generally with the lockdown and then social distancing uh, in New Zealand, um, but the tourism sector in particular, um, simply not getting the foreign visitors in, and of course the export education sector. Uh, uh, as well. And so, yeah, I, I would put it more sector specific rather than for general business operations uh, overall mm -hmm. from the borders being closed. You've already mentioned the housing market, but for those outside New Zealand who aren't familiar with the way houses are bought and sold over here, could you sketch out how that process occurs and how straightforward or otherwise it is? Oh, I, I guess I find it relatively straightforward uh, in New Zealand. Uh, if you want to sell your house, you just go along to a real estate agent and they'll list it on one of the websites there, uh, charge you a fee. I think it's usually maybe three, three and a half percent of the uh, selling price uh, in New Zealand. And the buyers, people just look online and inquire with the agent, go along to an open home, maybe have a look at the property. And then it depends which part of the country you are in, what the selling method will be. In Auckland, our biggest city up north, it tends to be auctions it's what both buyers and sellers are used to but in most other parts of the country it's more uh, either by tender or by uh, a set price basically the vendor is asking 850,000 and so you go and offer you know 800,000 or, or something like that mm -hmm. um, so that would be the general way in New Zealand you reach agreement sign the contracts and usually it's about four to six week settlement uh, period in New Zealand for the uh, exchange of keys the transfer uh, of title uh, so it's it's a relatively smooth process uh, in the country for residents buying and selling. When it comes to personal finances in New Zealand, I hear the word KiwiSaver mentioned regularly. I wondered if you could take me through exactly what the scheme is and how it works and why it's important. Okay, it's not a compulsory scheme. Australia has compulsory savings. I think it's at 9% of uh, uh, wages over there, maybe lifting to 12% one day. In New Zealand, KiwiSaver is not compulsory, um, but uh, if you join, you can sort of choose the amount you contribute. I think the minimum is 3% that you can contribute. The employer is required to match that, but not keep matching if you choose to contribute 4 or 5 you know, 10% uh, mm -hmm. of your salary, etc. You can 
take a holiday once you've joined up and I think you've been in the scheme for three or so years. You can take a, a payment holiday uh, if you want and that can stretch out for quite a number of years if you choose to. Uh, you can't take your money out unless it's an extremely dire need. Basically, if you're going to die, then maybe they will let you get your money out uh, uh, early. Uh, young people, I always encourage them to join KiwiSaver because you can get your money out and use it as uh, towards a deposit uh, for your first home. Uh, for instance, the aim of the scheme is not to replace the national pension, the superannuation, which is more the case in Australia. Uh, it's aimed at simply supplementing what will continue to be the national superannuation payment from the, the, the government. So it's, it's a supplement to the uh, pension um, and it really doesn't lead the government itself to cutting back on its health expenditure or the, the pension itself. Now, you've just touched on this in part, but I wondered if you could tell me what kind of advice you would give to young Kiwis who are just starting to earn some money and hope to future-proof themselves financially? Yes, yeah, don't blow it all at once, tempting as that may be with the first mm -hmm. few months of pay packets. Obviously, have a bit of fun there, but uh, you get get yourself joined up to KiwiSaver straight away because the chances are you will get the um, extra contribution from your employer um, and you can put your, your contribution, let's say it's the minimum 3% in there. Uh, when it comes time towards buying your uh, first house, uh, then you can withdraw all of your contributions and I think think your employers as well, I'm not specific on those uh, uh, details, and get a bit of a grant from the government uh, uh, also in that regard. Uh, so definitely that's that's the advice I always give to young people out there. But also just be aware that uh, it is difficult to get money out once you've put it in there. So maybe once you've taken advantage of the scheme uh, for your first purchase, I would be wary of recommending people throw every spare cent that they've got in there. I think it pays to have a your own diversified portfolio off to the side and you can use that for other purposes as they come along maybe if you want to fund yourself into an uh, investment property or you've got some family related expense etc um so that that lack of ability to get your money out i think does um just just sort of make it a good idea not to throw everything for your working life uh in there i've been reading about the so-called brain drain of skilled new zealanders moving overseas and how there's been a small reversal of that in recent times do you think the country's about to see a continued trend of Kiwis working overseas now returning to the country? Ah, the trend is the opposite, actually. Mm -hmm. You used to be able to buy T-shirts in New Zealand saying, will the last one out turn off the light? Uh, <laughs> between uh, 1975 and 1982, we had a net migration loss for New Zealand of about 156,000 people. From 1986 to 1989, it was a net loss of, of about 89,000 people. And we always talked about brain drain, people leaving the country in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. Up until maybe about 15 or so years ago, when as a result of fewer people leaving and more people coming in, a few Kiwis coming back, the underlying net migration numbers shifted from average losses of sort of 10, 17,000 per annum to average gains of, in fact, about 35,000 per annum um, over the past uh, 10 years. With exceptionally strong numbers over the past few few years with a lot of Kiwis again not leaving and, and coming back. And we haven't actually used that terminology brain drain 
up until about three to four months ago when it just crept in there again for the first time in about 15 years when people started to I guess maybe pick up on something I've been pointing out that when we Kiwis go overseas it's usually to escape our families and uh, for <laughs> income earning purposes and people do usually chuckle when they hear that first but yeah. um, when there's a mining boom in Australia, we go to Australia, there's 650,000 Kiwis living across in Australia, and I think maybe 70,000 or so across in, in London, for instance. And yeah, people have got this view that because our eradication strategy with COVID-19 has been extremely successful, because we're a set of islands in the middle of the wop-wops, um, that surely the 1 million Kiwis who live overseas, oh, the silly beggars, I bet they wish they were back here now. Oh, they're all coming back, aren't they? I'm clever. I know what they're going to do. They're going to buy a house. One reason New Zealand house prices have risen 34% since May last year is we Kiwis have been buying properties before these people come back. Well, they're not going to come back. Some like yourself, Victoria, are definitely. We all know people who have come back. Mm -hmm. But the point I put across to Kiwis is, we Kiwis are overseas for the income, etc. And labour markets are booming around the world. You have huge shortages of labour overseas. You can earn three times as much as a software engineer in the United States as you can in New Zealand. You can earn more packing shelves with your nursing degree in Australia in the supermarket than you can working as a nurse in New Zealand. I think actually that we're going to see the net migration flows for Kiwis to negative again fairly shortly. Now, since 2000, the annual net flow of Kiwis has been a loss of about 20,000 per annum. It was a gain of about 3,000 in calendar 2019. And we had a peak gain oh, about five months ago or so ago of about 25,000. I expect it's going to go negative, especially as a lot of us are going to go, I'm out of here, I'm going across to Australia. They need people on the farms, in the mines, in the care sector, for building houses. These things move in cycles. So actually, I think that we are moving back into a, a, a just a cyclical brain drain territory for a while. Finally, Tony, I'm going to return to a question that I'm asking every interviewee for this podcast. I wanted to ask you, what one piece of advice would you give to a newcomer to New Zealand who has just arrived and is planning to make a life here? Yes, I spent some time 10 or so years ago talking with different groups of Kiwis across in London um, in, in particular, but also across in, in Dublin and, 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 and Paris and Hamburg. And um, yeah, key piece of advice that I picked up from Kiwis themselves there who'd been back to New Zealand, gone back to London, do not boast about a single thing that you have done overseas, because back <laughs> here in New Zealand, we will not be impressed with any number you come out of, how many employees you had under you, how many outlets you have control uh, of, you know, for their retail network, etc. We do not give a hoot about that. We know you're not coming back here to New Zealand to uh, make a billion dollars. You're coming back here for the for the lifestyle, which I guess we're already in, enjoying. Um, yes, we have a tall poppy syndrome in New Zealand, but I find many countries have a similar thing. So my one piece of advice was never at any stage boast about anything you've done overseas. It, it may take you a while to figure that out, but uh, learn quickly. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, Tony. I really appreciate all that insight and it's been great to talk to you. You too, Victoria. Thanks very much for having us on. My thanks to Tony Alexander for sharing his knowledge about the New Zealand economy and financial issues. Plus, of course, those great beach camping suggestions and other general advice. To read more of Tony's wide-ranging financial wisdom, go to tonyalexander.nz. 
What Kind of Country was written, presented and edited by me, Victoria Meakin. My producer in Christchurch is Bridget de Goldie, and our original music was written and performed in New Zealand by Corey Borzica. What Kind of Country is a broaden-up production. Mm-hmm.